Welcome to another in-depth exploration of biblical missionaries, written by Borge Schantz, edited for audio and produced by the Ambassador Group. Exploration 4. The Jonah Saga. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, New International Version. The Jonah saga is the account of a Hebrew prophet working well beyond his comfort zone. Alive during the reign of Jeroboam II, about 750 B.C., according to 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25, Jonah is the only Old Testament prophet whom we know of who was directly called to be a missionary in another country. The truth that the creator of all races did not intend to limit salvation only to his chosen people is stated repeatedly in the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah and the Psalms. Even though popular Israelite theology at the time of Jonah did not accept that the Gentiles were also in God's plan to partake in salvation. Even in the New Testament times, it was a hard lesson for the Jewish believers to learn. In the four chapters of Jonah, we read an honest record of Jonah's reluctant pioneering experience as a foreign missionary, both the positive and the negative. Here, a person's inner and very human reaction to the call of God is preserved, along with a powerful appeal for the need of foreign missions. A few guidelines for foreign missionaries and cross-cultural witnesses emerge from the book, which also points to solutions for some of the issues and the problems modern missionaries face. The Flawed Prophet. Second Kings 14, verse 25 mentions Jonah. Jeroboam restored Israel's border from the entrance of Hamath to the Dead Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. What does this verse tell us about Jonah? How is he described? Let's compare our listening observations. The verse said, Jonah was God's servant. Jonah was a prophet. Outside the book of Jonah, the prophet is mentioned in one other Old Testament passage. The verse we heard, 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25. Here Jonah is honored as a prophet that predicted Israel's recapture of territory taken by Syria. Jonah was born in Gath-Hefer. In Hebrew, that place's name means winepress at the waterhole. Gath-Hefer was a town in Zebulun in northern Israel, only a few miles from Nazareth. This means that both Jesus and Jonah were Galilean prophets separated by about 750 years. Let's find out more about Jonah from his own journal, so to speak, the book of Jonah. Listen with this two-sided question in mind. What kind of picture do these verses present about him, both the good and the bad? From Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, 9, and verse 12. 
Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from being in the presence of the Lord as his prophet, and went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, the most remote of the Phoenician trading places then known. So he paid the appointed fare and went down into the ship to go with them to Tarshish from being in the presence of the Lord as his servant and minister. Verse 9, And he, Jonah, said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I reverently fear and worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Verse 12, And Jonah said to them, Take me up and cast me into the sea. So shall the sea become calm for you, for I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. From Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly, and said, I cried out of my distress to the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of Sheol cried I, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your presence and your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters compassed me about, even to the extinction of life. The abyss surrounded me. The seaweed was wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms and the very roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit and corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted upon me, crushing me, I earnestly and seriously remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to false, useless, and worthless idols forsake their own source of mercy and loving kindness. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that which I have vowed. Salvation and deliverance belong to the Lord. And Jonah chapter 3, verses 3 to 10. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city of three days' journey, sixty miles in circumference. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed in God, and proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth, in penitent mourning, from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came to the king of Nineveh of all that had happened to Jonah and his terrifying message from God. And he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe aside, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he made proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell? God may turn and revoke his sentence against us when we have met his terms and turn away from his fierce anger so that we perish not. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God revoked his sentence of evil 
that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it, for he was comforted and eased concerning them. Jonah emerges from his book a strange mixture of strength and weakness, self-willed and rebellious, but also teachable and obedient. He was loyal to God, courageous, and a believer in prayer. But he was also narrow-minded, selfish, and vindictive. While Jonah was described as a servant of the Lord in 2 Kings 14.25, he cut a somewhat sad and tragic figure in the book bearing his name. It is a mark of the integrity and reliability of the Bible that he was described in such a candid manner. The natural human tendency of a writer would be to obscure and hide less acceptable aspects of biblical heroes. But under the Spirit's inspiration, the Bible's authors present the valiant along with the petty in the lives of people to illustrate the truth that no matter how weak and unpleasant these characters may be, God is able to work through them if they are willing. What other Bible characters did God use despite their personality flaws? What hope can you draw for yourself from the fact that God uses flawed and damaged people to work for him in reaching out to others? Go to Nineveh was God's command to Jonah. In the Old Testament, the usual appeal to the nations was, Come to Zion. God's original plan was for Israel to live their religion, making the nations so attractive that other nations would come to them for guidance, as Isaiah 56 and verse 7 says. All these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 to 20 tells us Jesus' command to his disciples. Jesus approached and, breaking the silence, said to them, All authority, all power of rule in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go then and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you all the days, perpetually, uniformly, and on every occasion, to the very close and consummation of the age. Amen. So let it be. Jonah, as a forerunner of the disciples in the New Testament, is told to go to Nineveh, which to him seemed an unclean center of idolatry, brutality, and totalitarianism. Jonah made detailed preparations to go west by sea, even though God had directed him to go east by land. Jonah, the unwilling prophet, fled in the opposite direction. We will now hear Jonah chapter 1, verses 3 to 17. What lessons can you gain from this amazing narrative? But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from being in the presence of the Lord as his prophet and went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, the most remote of the Phoenician trading places then known. So he paid the appointed fare and went down into the ship to go with them to Tarshish from being in the presence of the Lord as his servant and minister. But the Lord sent out a great wind upon the sea, 
and there was a violent tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid, and each man cried to his God, and they cast the goods that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call upon your God. Perhaps your God will give a thought to us so that we shall not perish. And they each said to one another, Come, let let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us, we pray you, on whose account has this evil come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? And what is your country and nationality? And he said to them, I, I am a Hebrew, and I, I, I reverently fear and worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he fled from being in the presence of the Lord as his prophet and servant, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may subside and be calm for us? For the sea became more and more violently tempestuous. And Jonah said to them, Take me up and and cast me into the sea. So shall the sea become calm for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, The men rowed hard to bring the ship to the land, but they could not, for the sea became more and more violent against them. Therefore they cried to the Lord, We beseech you, O Lord, we beseech you, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not upon us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they took up Jonah, and cast him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men reverently and worshipfully feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now the Lord had prepared and appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. God's response to Jonah's flight came in the form of a mighty storm. The winds obey their creator, even though his prophet does not. Mark 4 verse 41 tells us their reaction to the elements. And they were filled with great awe and feared exceedingly. And said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? Jonah chapter 1 verse 5 tells us how the crew felt. Then the mariners were afraid, and each man cried to his God, and they cast the goods that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Jonah slept during the storm while the Gentile crew prayed. In honesty, Jonah confessed that he caused the calamity and he testified to the true God and creator. Notice that his reply, I am Hebrew, referred both to his religion and his nationality. In their alarm at the ferocity of the storm, the Gentile sailors tried to save themselves and the passengers, and they showed compassion to Jonah in their reluctance to comply with his instructions to throw him overboard. The reluctant prophet was willing to sacrifice himself to save others. When they finally complied, the storm ceased 
and the sea calmed. The amazed sailors became Jonah's first converts to his God, who could work through Jonah even while he fled from his call. The salvation of Jonah was just as miraculous as was the salvation of the ship. God prepared a great fish. The original Hebrew doesn't specify what sort of fish saved Jonah by swallowing him. Jonah in the belly of the fish is certainly the best-known episode of the story. However, it should not overshadow the book's deeper message that God loves, cares for, and wills the salvation of all people. The sovereignty of God is proclaimed in Isaiah 44, verse 8. Fear not, nor be afraid, in the coming violent upheavals. Have I not told it to you from of old, and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no other rock. I know not any. Isaiah 45, verses 5 and 6. I am the Lord, and there is no one else. There is no God besides me. I will gird and arm you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the east and the rising of the sun and from the west and the setting of the sun, that there is no God besides me. I am the Lord, and no one else is he. Yes, in the end, there is only one God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Anything else anyone worships is idolatry and error. Any other God they pray to is imaginary, a lie. Why is this truth so important for us to realize and internalize for ourselves, especially in the context of mission? the belly of the big fish. Now the Lord had prepared and appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And said, I cried out of my distress to the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of Sheol cried I, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your presence and your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters compassed me about, even to the extinction of life. The abyss surrounded me. The seaweed was wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms and the very roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit and corruption. O Lord, my God! When my soul fainted upon me, crushing me, I earnestly and seriously remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to false, useless, and worthless idols forsake their own source of mercy and loving kindness. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that which I have vowed, Salvation and deliverance belong to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. 
That was Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, through chapter 2, verse 10. The three-day experience in the belly of the big fish became a type of the death and resurrection of Christ, which Jesus himself referred to as recorded by Matthew in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. This is how the Amplified Bible tells Jesus' words. For even as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. God provided and directed the great fish. Although there are accounts of people who survived at sea after having been swallowed by a whale, we must remember that God provided this particular great fish as well as the miraculous power that sustained his servant while inside. That is, in the end, this was a miraculous event that could have occurred only through the supernatural intervention of the Lord, who is revealed all through the Bible as a personal God, who does indeed intervene miraculously in people's lives. There is evidence that the phrase three days and three nights was an ancient figure of speech expressing the time needed for the imaginary journey to Sheol, the Hebrew name for the realm of the dead. Considering what happened to him, Jonah indeed should have been as good as dead. In the belly of the fish, Jonah began to pray. Earlier, when waking Jonah from sleep, the frantic captain had directed Jonah in vain to call on your God. Jonah 1.6 says, again from the Amplified Bible, So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call upon your God. Perhaps your God will give a thought to us so that we shall not perish. That was then. Now, in a hopeless situation, Jonah starts to pray. And seriously, too. It took something this desperate to get him finally to do what he should have been doing all along. A summary of Jonah's prayer has been preserved in the form of a psalm of thanksgiving. Such psalms typically include five parts. Introduction, description of the distress, cry to God for help, report of God's action, and promise to keep any vow made and to testify to God's saving action. That is, Lord, if you get me out of this, I promise to do such and such. Who hasn't prayed that kind of prayer before? The question is, did you do what you covenanted to do? The Nineveh Generation Jonah 3 What great message do you hear in the context of outreach and evangelism? Listen. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach and cry out to it the preaching that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city of three days' journey, 60 miles in circumference. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed in God and proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth in penitent mourning, from the greatest of them even to the least of them. How does Jesus take the story of Jonah 
and apply it to himself. We find the answer in John chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Jesus answered them, Destroy, undo this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. Then the Jews replied, It took 46 years to build this temple, sanctuary, and will you raise it up in three days? But he had spoken of the temple, which was his body. When therefore he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and so they believed and trusted and relied on the scripture and the word message Jesus had spoken. The chapter ends with the words, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Jonah chapter 2 and verse 10, New International Version. God's command to the great fish brought about what well-meaning sailors failed to do for Jonah. In the same way, Christ commanded the disciples after his resurrection to go into all the world. So Jonah, after his underwater adventure, went to the Gentiles and became the most successful missionary in the Old Testament. Jonah's rescue witnessed to God's saving mercy. His seaweed-draped arrival on the beach testified to God's determination to save even sinful Assyrians from death. For word came to the king of Nineveh of all that had happened to Jonah and his terrifying message from God. And he arose from his throne and he laid his robe aside covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he made proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them cry mightily to God, Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell? God may turn and revoke his sentence against us when we have met his terms and turn away from his fierce anger so that we perish not. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God revoked his sentence of evil that he had said that he would do to them. And he did not do it, for he was comforted and eased concerning them. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah chapter 3 verses 1 and 2, New International Version. Two verbs are important in the text. First, this is the second time God says, go. God does not give up. He grants failing humans a second chance. Here again, we have the New Testament mission concept, which is the idea of going to the nations as opposed to expecting the nations to come to you. The other important verb is proclaim. Proclamation has always been important in the Bible. It is still the most effective way of spreading the gospel message. God emphasized to Jonah that it should be the message I give you. That is, the message we proclaim must be God's, not our own, or even a tweaked, modified, or edited version of it. God's message is generally threat and promise, judgment and gospel. His stark proclamation was, Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was the judgment. Yet there was also the promise of hope, of deliverance, of salvation. There must have been because the people heeded the message and were saved. Even with the everlasting gospel at the heart of it, Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 to 12, the three angels' messages also warns about judgment. Gospel and judgment go hand in hand. The gospel offers us God's way 
to avoid the condemnation that judgment would justly bring upon us all. No preaching of the gospel is fully effective unless judgment is taught. Political correctness, which leads to a watering down of these stark elements and downplaying differences between religions, or even between different Christian traditions, is risky. Though in mission we need to adapt our presentation for the people we are trying to reach, contextualization, we must never do so at the expense of the message God has given us to proclaim. In Jonah's mission, Jonah chapter 3 verses 5 through 10 say, So the people of Nineveh believed in God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth in penitent mourning, from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came to the king of Nineveh of all that had happened to Jonah and his terrifying message from God. And he arose from his throne and laid his robe aside, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he made proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell? God may turn and revoke his sentence against us when we have met his terms and turn away from his fierce anger so that we perish not. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God revoked his sentence of evil that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it, for he was comforted and eased concerning them. What happened? The Ninevites believed, acted on their beliefs, exercised their faith, and were saved. God has given us some wonderful promises and stern warnings, too. What does this story teach about the conditionality of these promises and warnings? Jonah's Lament But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, I pray you, O Lord, is not this just what I said when I was still in my country? That is why I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And when sinners turn to you and meet your conditions, you revoke the sentence of evil against them. Therefore now, O Lord, I beseech you, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then said the Lord, Do you do well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city. And he made a booth there for himself. He sat there under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to deliver him from his evil situation. So Jonah was exceedingly glad to have the protection of the gourd. But God prepared a cutworm when the morning dawned the next day, and it smote the gourd so that it withered. And when the sun arose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah so that he fainted and wished in himself to die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the loss of the gourd? 
And he said, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Then said the Lord, You have had pity on the gourd, for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not spare Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons not yet old enough to know their right hand from their left, and also many cattle not accountable for sin? What we have just heard, Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, confirms that the greatest obstacle for God to get his prophet involved in world mission was not distance, wind, sailors, fish, or Ninevites. It was the prophet himself. Ninevite faith contrasted with Jonah's unbelief and vindictive spirit. Jonah is the only person in the scriptures who accuses God of being gracious, compassionate, and slow to anger, abounding in love, and who relents from sending calamity. One would think most people would view these aspects of God with thankfulness. When Jonah heard of God's purpose to spare the city that notwithstanding its wickedness, had been led to repent in sackcloth and ashes, he should have been the first to rejoice because of God's amazing grace. But instead, he allowed his mind to dwell upon the possibility of his being regarded as a false prophet. Jealous of his reputation, he lost sight of the infinitely greater value of the souls in that wretched city. The compassion shown by God toward the repentant Ninevites displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. That insight is from the book entitled Prophets and Kings, page 271. The author is Ellen G. White. We will now again listen to Jonah chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. What do these texts teach us about the character of God in contrast to sinful human nature? Why should we be glad God, not fellow human beings, is our ultimate judge? Then said the Lord, You have had pity on the gourd, for which you have not labored nor made it grow which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not spare Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons not yet old enough to know their right hand from their left, and also many cattle not accountable for sin? Jonah showed his anger twice in chapter 4. He was angry because God changed his mind and saved Nineveh's more than 120,000 inhabitants. He was also angry because the vine withered. In his selfishness, the prophet needed to get his priorities right. God instructed Jonah to recognize human brotherhood based on the fatherhood of God. The prophet should accept his common humanity with these foreigners, although they were wayward. Were not 120,000 people more important than a vine? Consider one more time the Lord's rebuke to Jonah. Then said the Lord, You have had pity on the gourd, for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than a 120,000 persons not yet old enough to know their right hand from their left, and also many cattle not accountable for sin? In what ways might the Lord be able to say something similar to you? That is, how often do you find yourself more concerned over your own personal issues 
many of which at times can really be trivial, than over the lost souls whom Christ shed his blood to save. Continue exploring. Johannes Verkuehl, on page 96 of his book entitled Contemporary Missiology, published by William B. Erdman's Publishing Company in 1978, wrote, The book of Jonah is so significant for understanding the biblical basis of mission because it treats God's mandate to his people regarding the Gentile peoples and thus serves as the preparatory step to the missionary mandate of the New Testament. But it is also important for catching a glimpse of the deep resistance this mandate encounters from the very servant Yahweh has chosen to discharge his worldwide work. On page 80 of her book entitled The Southern Work, Ellen G. White wrote, In the history of Nineveh, there is a lesson which you should study carefully. You must know your duty to your fellow beings who are ignorant and defiled and who need your help. What is our duty to these fellow beings? Here are a few historical highlights relating to Jonah's time. Assyria was one of the superpowers dominating the ancient Near East from about 885 to 625 BC. Israel and Judah suffered repeatedly under her harsh rule. Israel's King Jehu was forced to pay tribute to the dominating Assyrian ruler Shalmaneser III. Israel finally fell to Assyrian forces about 722 BC. No wonder Jonah was reluctant to go to Nineveh, one of the four chief cities of Assyria, and the center for the worship of Ishtar, goddess of love and war. God had called him to visit the very spiritual heartland of enemy territory to call on the warlike Assyrians to repent. What lessons would you say there are regarding missions? Revelation 3 verses 17 and 18 describe the Lord's counsel to the church at Laodicea. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered and grown wealthy, and I am in need of nothing. And you do not realize and understand that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore I counsel you to purchase from me gold refined and tested by fire, that you may be truly wealthy, and white clothes to clothe you, and to keep the shame of your nudity from being seen, and a salve to put on your eyes, so that you may see. Here is a question to contemplate. How can you avoid the assumption that the counsels and blessings of the Lord in areas such as the Sabbath, health, and education are given for your own benefit rather than for the benefit of the nations. Revelation 14 verses 6 to 12 is known as the three angels' messages. You might be wondering, what are the three angels' messages? Listen to how the Amplified Bible brings them to life. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, with an eternal gospel, good news, to tell to the inhabitants of the earth, to every race and tribe and language and people. And he cried with a mighty voice, Revere God and give him glory, 
honor and praise and worship. For the hour of his judgment has arrived. Fall down before him, pay him homage and adoration, and worship him who created heaven and earth, the sea and the springs, fountains of water. Then another angel, a second, followed declaring, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink of the maddening wine of her passionate, unchastity, idolatry. Then another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a mighty voice, Whoever pays homage to the beast and his statue and permits the beast's stamp, mark, inscription to be put on his forehead or on his hand, he too shall have to drink of the wine of God's indignation and wrath, poured undiluted into the cup of his anger, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no respite, no pause, no intermission, no rest, no peace, day or night. These who pay homage to the beast and to his image, and whoever receives the stamp of his name upon him. Here comes in a call for the steadfastness of the saints, the patience, the endurance of the people of God, those who habitually keep God's commandments and their faith in Jesus. In what ways do these three angels' messages reflect the messages that Jonah had for the Ninevites. Some people automatically reject the Jonah story, particularly the part where he's in the belly of the fish. Now let's ask two questions in the context of presuppositions. A presupposition is to suppose or assume beforehand, take for granted in advance. Now that we've defined what a presupposition is, what presuppositions would cause a person to automatically reject the Jonah story? What presuppositions do you need in order to believe it? AmbassadorGroup.org This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.